Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. American violinist David Chan is the esteemed concertmaster of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, a position he's held for over two decades. He's also been making a name for himself leading ensembles as a conductor and has learned from experience how to stay grounded while doing it. Ultimately, no matter how great a conductor, how great a musician you are, you can wave that stick all day long and it doesn't make a sound. The conductor's at once the most important person in the room and the least important person in the room. Both are true at the same time. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I have a very fond memory from a concert we played together back in 2003. It was a Carnegie Hall program that featured both concert masters of our orchestra playing solos with the orchestra. And I was really taken by how beautifully you played. But I also felt a tremendous amount of pride because it was only like my second season. So your playing represented the caliber of the entire ensemble. And on top of that, the applause and cheering you got from the musicians on stage playing with you nearly drowned out the ovation you got from a packed Carnegie Hall audience. And that was the moment on stage when I realized this is a great orchestra to be a part of. This is a great place to be. Well, first of all, your words are extremely kind. Needless to say, it was a big moment for me. It was my Carnegie Hall solo debut and my first time playing a concerto with the orchestra. Obviously, a lot of emotions, had a lot of family there. You can imagine that the memories of it are kind of a blur of emotion, um, excitement, stress also, not to be denied. But yeah, it was a great moment. And to hear your words this many years afterwards that it was that memorable for you, it really means a lot. So your title is concert master. Most people who go to see orchestra concerts know which one the concert master is because they walk out ahead of the conductor, take a little bow, and tune the orchestra. But beyond that, can you give me a sense of what being concertmaster means? People see the ceremonial part. You walk out, you take your own bow, you tune the orchestra, you shake the conductor's hand, 
And none of that is really difficult. I mean, it helps to look good at it, but you don't really audition for that stuff. Musically, it's actually not even that easy to, to define. Playing well, I think, is a huge part, but being a good leader is even more important than inspiring with your solos. Of course, being prepared, knowing the score, not just your own part, but how it fits with other sections of the orchestra, who to listen to. All these things help, but there's a lot of truth in the saying that this is one of those things you can't teach, you just have to learn by doing it. And in terms of your role, the function of the concertmaster, the hierarchy, you might say, is that a composer writes a piece of music, gives the instruction to the conductor in the form of the score, and the conductor gives instruction to the orchestra in terms of their beat. And then you're this intermediary between the conductor's beat and the orchestra, right? Yeah, that's very well said. And I would say, generally speaking, that's the way the hierarchy falls. But in actual practice, it's much more complicated than that. Often, leading means following. Keeping something together means going with someone else. Being an effective leader also involves being able to delegate, being able to hand over responsibility, even if it's temporarily, to other people. So grasping how all those things interact, it matters a lot. And to be honest, depending who's conducting, a lot of times I won't even look at the conductor. I'll look at you. Because as you're about to play, your body language gives a beat in and of itself. Are these motions inherent in the way you play, or is it something that you worked on and practiced in front of a mirror the same way a conductor would try to be very precise with their baton? That's an amazingly interesting question, because in a sense, the answer is no. And in another sense, the answer is I've done it thousands upon thousands of times, because maybe one has an arsenal of movements that you tend to fall back on. But you can't possibly know which one you're going to need because it depends on what happens in that moment. And ultimately, no matter what your technical and musical level is, if you're not listening in the moment, you can't produce the necessary motion. It's part reactive and part proactive. So essentially, it's, it's a conversation. Yeah, and ultimately, no matter how great a conductor, how great a musician you are, you can wave that stick all day long and it doesn't make a sound. The conductor's at once the most important person in the room and the least important person in the room. Both are true at the same time. I think most conductors know half of that. <laughs> um, your vantage point is much different than mine within the orchestra. I sit in the brass in the back of the orchestra, but you sit very close to the conductor. You're right beside the conductor's podium. I would imagine that's a very unique perspective. You must really sense what they're going through on a, on a visceral level sometimes. For sure. And it's easy for orchestras to complain about conductors. They have a really hard job and you have to have a lot of skills. They have a lot to keep track of and sometimes they just can't keep up with it all and it's not their fault. There are just too many variables on stage or things that are beyond their control and they're making the best of it. So I kind of view my role as being how can I best help this person? What can I do to make it go more smoothly for them? Now, when they don't seem to appreciate what I'm doing, that's another matter. 
Yeah, right. And having worked so closely with so many conductors, what's the difference between a great conductor and a mediocre one? There isn't any one thing that nails it, but I think ultimately the great conductor has something to say and is able to convey that to the orchestra and get people on board. It's no good if if you're able to explain it, show it, but you can't get people on board with you. So it's kind of the three-part, having the vision, being able to convey it, and being able to get people on board with you. Truthfully, it sounds like a description of a politician as well. Well, it's any great leader, really. Um, now, notice when I s- said able to convey it, I didn't say clearer. Because we've played with great conductors or great musicians who are not necessarily clear, but at their best, they managed to convey it, and we were able to execute it, and the result was thrilling. Whereas there are other people who are clear, and you wouldn't call them a great conductor. So what makes not a great conductor, of course, it could be any number of things. But if you don't understand what your role is, and you're right off the bat antagonizing the orchestra... There's no hope of getting anywhere. Ultimately, this is about humans. Working in an orchestra, conducting an orchestra, playing for a conductor, these are all human interactions. And when you take that out of the picture, you can't really get to where you need to go. So in addition to being a violinist, you also conduct, and I'm sure this experience of working closely with these conductors as concertmaster has informed your own conducting technique. But I'm curious... Have you learned more what to do or what not to do in your experiences with these conductors? If you could see my face, you would see the wry smile. I I think, to be completely honest, it would have to be what not to do. But I think the same is true in life of many things. It, it, It was certainly true for me with violin. I mean, you can read the news and immediately you can get 100 things not to do, right? Um. So... That is, again, not to criticize conductors, actually, because it's recognizing how many things they do right, but the things that you wish were different are the things that stand out. And those can be really formative in one's mind as, okay, I don't want to do that in that situation, or how would I solve the same problem? Right. When I think of concerts that were really memorable to me, most of them I was performing in, and every once in a while it's a concert that I'm attending. Do you get just as excited listening to a concert, or or is is participating in it crucial for you? Yes. I've had times in the audience where I was incredibly moved, and times where I was performing where I was incredibly moved. The performances that I think of as most memorable in my life— I'm usually in an orchestra. My chamber and recital and even concerto experiences tend not to figure into those lists, even though a lot of them have great personal meaning to me. But um, when I think of like the top few, they've all pretty much been with large forces. Memorable concerts. Well, let me tell you about one of those memorable concerts I wasn't playing in. It was a number of years ago, a colleague of ours passed away, and we were at the memorial service, and you performed Schubert. Uh, I think it was a quintet. It was the second movement of the Schubert string quintet. And I don't think I've ever been in a place where the sentiment of the music had more meaning, it was more applicable to everyone in the room. 
It was an incredibly moving moment. I, I'd forgotten about that. Um, you're exactly right. It's rare that everyone is is experiencing the same emotion at the same time. Your parents are from Taiwan, and they heard that children who studied music did better in math. So the question I want to ask is, how's your math? <laughs> well, um, math was a strength in school, but I don't know if that is because I studied music or maybe I'm good at music because I was good at math. I say that because studying scores now, I'm well aware of how mathematical music is. When you're working structurally, you become much more aware of how many bars in a phrase. I mean, you, you would never want to reduce a masterpiece to a series of numbers, but that numerical code is underneath it. The connection between math and music is very strong. And what about practicing when you were younger? Did you have to be forced to practice? Were you reluctant or were you willing to do it on your own? It was willing, then reluctant, then resisting. Then it kind of came full circle. Um, I mean, I started in Suzuki Method like so many kids, and it was fun until it was like, okay, David's doing really well. Let's go to a more serious teacher. Ooh, not so fun. The scales and double stops and stuff like that. Then it became a regimen. I went through a little phase 11, 12, where I was trying to negotiate my way out of playing the violin altogether. And my parents said, take more time to do other stuff if you want. Maybe don't practice every day if you don't feel like it, but just promise us you won't let it go. And then I went on a tour of Eastern Europe with the San Diego Youth Symphony. So I went to all these great musical centers, Prague, Budapest, Vienna. And I was like, I never want to do anything else. Playing music with your friends in beautiful cities like that, who would want to do anything else? And so at that point, things came full circle and then, then it became something I wanted to do. Well, you went on to attend Harvard and Juilliard. When people think about the upper echelon in academics or music, they think of these two schools. Having attended both, what's your perspective on the education that you got? And quite frankly, are these schools all they're cracked up to be? You know, I would extend that even backwards to high school and earlier, because I went to a very fine private school in Southern California. And it's only when I went back to visit, I was walking around the school and it's like, wow, I had the privilege of having this extraordinary education in this amazing place growing up. But I had to get outside it to realize that. And I think the same is true of Harvard and of Juilliard. When you're in it, you don't know anything else. But when you have a chance to step outside and look at what the rest of the world experiences, and then you look at those places, it is all it's cracked up to be, which doesn't mean that there aren't problems, of course. But um, La Jolla Country Day was extraordinary. Harvard was extraordinary. Juilliard was extraordinary in a different way. If I want to emphasize one aspect of going to Harvard, it was knowing that I wanted to be a musician, that I spent four years interacting daily with very high-level people who were not going to be in music. Because I've spent basically my life since then immersed in music. And happily so, but that was very helpful at that point in my life to continue to get other perspectives. So if you were already set on the course of being a musician 
in high school. What led you to Harvard? Why not just start at a music conservatory? It was a number of things. I think my parents were apprehensive not having musicians in the family before. They thought have some solid academic credentials to fall back on. Makes sense, right? Um, but also, I visited Juilliard, and, and I remember walking in to the security desk, and even that hallway was filled with cigarette smoke in those days, and people dressed in black, and didn't make a great impression on me. And I went to Harvard, I, I saw the yard, I saw Cambridge, and I was like, this would be a great place to spend four years. And, and I had a lot of interest besides music. So these all played into my decision to go to university first. It's obvious that you love music, but you also love wine, specifically wine from the Burgundy region, so much so that you co-founded a music festival of music and wine there in Burgundy, France. Is there a relationship there between music and wine? And Well, I think there is a connection. I think you have the common element of at the highest levels, it can express something that you can't say in words. So they can both serve as a universal language, right? You can have two people who don't share a common tongue, taste a great wine, and they're both moved or hear a great piece of music. They can't converse about it, but they've experienced the same thing. And that's powerful. Of course, it's rare that you actually have the situation where they can't communicate at all. But there's that aspect. There's also the aspect that in Burgundy in particular, there's a philosophy of terroir, which is what the land gives you, where the ultimate aim of the winemaker is to let the earth speak for itself rather than to impose their house style or their fingerprints too strongly upon it. And I think as a musician, there's a similar philosophy in terms of what the composer gives you. So I, I think these parallels definitely exist between music and wine. You got to tell me what happens at the festival. I've seen pictures. It looks like a beautiful place. Everyone's dressed to the nines. There's tons of old bottles of wine. There's music and a lot of fancy cutlery. That's pretty accurate. Is it? Well, well, look, what happens at a regular concert, the audience goes out to dinner before, maybe has a drink or two. They go to the concert. Then the musicians go out and have probably more than one or two drinks, right? So this is just a way of codifying all of that where the audience comes and does a wine tasting at the chateau before the concert, then you have the concert, then afterwards, musicians, winemakers, and the audience get together and share food and wine. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's kind of a time-honored formula that's just been made official. So you lead many ensembles and are part of a lot of projects, one of which is called the Apex Ensemble, which pairs New York City-based professional musicians with students in the area. We sit side by side and perform concerts in Montclair, New Jersey. Can you talk to me a little bit about that ensemble and its mission? Yeah, well, it came at a point where I was looking to explore conducting more. So my wife actually came to me with the ad and said, don't laugh, but I think you should go out for this. And you know, it's actually, I, I took the opposite view. I was competing against real conductors, whereas I had no formal training. I thought, well, they're, they're not going to pick me. But obviously, since we're talking about it, they did. So I've been doing it. And they came to me with wanting to have a, a model of part professional, part student, and maybe even part amateur, which, um, you know, has been a component at times. Less now, because 
it's much more mission driven about this pre-professional training arrangement. But I, I looked at that and I thought, I can work with this, but how about we kick it up a notch? And since we're in the New York metro area, we can have the best of both sides. We can have some of the top orchestral professionals in the world, and certainly some of the top conservatory students in the world side by side. And so that's how that got started. And I, it's a real passion of mine because A, it fills a void in Montclair. Montclair is a tr tremendously cultural town. Word has it that the London Symphony Cleveland Orchestra once upon a time would play on a series known as the Unity Series the day before playing the same program in Carnegie Hall. So there's a huge void for that. But I think there's also a void for this type of experience where students that are still in school have a chance to play with some of the best in the business and sometimes even their teachers. I've had particularly wind and brass mentors tell me, you know what, this was just great because my student played alongside me and the things we've been working on in the lesson finally clicked because we were able to work on it in real time in the actual situation. So there's a lot that's already happening there and I think there's potential for even more to happen with that. Bringing music to a community seems to be something very close to your heart. In fact, during the pandemic, you conducted a concert in San Diego with the Mainly Mozart Festival where you played in a drive-in theater. So everyone was safe from COVID, parked in their own car in a field listening to this concert. I was actually fortunate to, to do three series of such concerts um, spread out through 2021. So set the stage for me. How do these concerts happen? The first two of those three series were in the parking lot of the Del Mar Fairgrounds, which is where they, they have a racetrack where the Del Mar Fair is set up every year. So I grew up going to the fairgrounds, um, you know, to get my funnel cake and ride the roller coaster. I'm pretty sure that if someone asked you in 2019, if you wanted to play a drive-in concert, you'd say, no, thank you. Fast forward enough months of being at home with no public performance and being isolated from friends and colleagues and it starts to sound like a pretty good idea. It was really moving to see how much live music mattered to people. So to have that extremely creative outlet to make it happen, that was tremendous. Um, by, by the third such series, it was on a former polo grounds. So it was on a grass field where people were out of their cars. They were on, on blankets or at picnic tables. Um, it had evolved a bit by then, but the overall experience is the same. Bringing live music and making sure that the music-loving community was, was being served with it. It's interesting to talk to you because you love fine wine, classical music, things that are known as highbrow and can be elitist, yet you insist that it belongs to the community. How do you approach an audience of people that haven't experienced either 
and don't know what they're missing or have preconceived ideas of what classical music or fine wine is? You know, my aim as a musician is to achieve simplicity. You know very well that simplicity doesn't just happen. Like if you if you just kind of go straight through something, that's not simplicity. That's just kind of boring and uninformed. Simplicity is actually the height of complexity where you have considered everything and you pick out all the things that don't really fit and you discard them. And then you're able to strike out the path. That's the most direct and most simple that conveys the message and shows the arc of the piece. It takes a lot of work to get there. However, if you manage to do all that, the impression that's conveyed to the listener is one of simplicity, that they don't have to follow all these detours and wonder where they are. You give it everything you have, but the outside listener who's worried about something being too elite or too niche for them to understand, they don't need to know about all that. Our role in putting all that work in is so they can enjoy it. And whatever level they can meet it at is completely fine. They don't have to know everything you put into it. Chances aren't, unless somebody does exactly the same thing as you, there's no way they could anyway. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.